Lego with his kids. So I thought, that's good. That's really good. So I'm going to hand over to you, Grant. So uh, wow. go for it. So. Thank you very much, Dean. Kia ora. How did I do? Is that all right? Yeah. All right. It's so great to be with you. And may I say a special thank you to Pastor Dean for allowing me to be here. He's taking a big risk allowing an Australian bass player to <laughs> preach. <laughs> But it's great to be with you here this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Let me just sort one little thing out. Yes, this is a special World Vision service, but I'm not on staff with World Vision. I just love what World Vision do so much that whenever I sing, whenever I speak, I love to point people towards their work. And I'm going to say that it's actually through partnership with World Vision and in other places of the world, in, in the world like the United States and Australia, partner with other similar organisations and through child sponsorship in particular, that God has transformed this person who wanted to be a rock star for Jesus to allow me to be healed of that affliction and step more deeply into what I believe is my calling. My, my chosen calling. Um, but yeah, I'm in New Zealand now. And I can tell it's sort of taking effect because in the last three days, I've become a fan of Rugby Sevens. I'm an Australian rules football guy, right, Misha? Like, but how did that happen? But I'm su super excited when, when um, New Zealand does well in the Olympics. It's, it's taking a hold of me, this New Zealand thing. Uh, but can I show you a photograph of my family? All right, I hope this clicker works. Here we go. There they are. That's my bunch. So uh, we took advantage of the travel bubble and zipped over to Newcastle to be at my niece's wedding. Then um, we took the whole tribe. So this is my wife, Brooke. We've been married 20 years. The first city we lived in together was Nashville, Tennessee. I was playing bass guitar in the touring band, the Paul Coleman Trio, and we were about to relocate to the United States to be a rock star for Jesus, you know. <laughs> and, um, but we got married. But she's an Upamutri girl, right? Born in Auckland, but raised in, uh, near Nelson, top of the South Island. And I don't tell you this going in, but if you would be so crazy as to fall in love with a Kiwi girl and marry her, you will eventually live in New Zealand. Come on. They don't tell you that going in, but it's true. And I've heard it works the other way as well. I don't know. You will eventually live in New Zealand. Anyway, we won't go down that path. But we lived in America for 17 years, Nashville, Tennessee, Music City, USA. Long enough to have three Americans of our own. So this is Max, my oldest. He's 14. Marcus, 8. He came to us by adoption. And Casper, who's 7. Pretty good bunch, right? And we got here very late 2018, right before Christmas, relocating from Nashville, Tennessee. We made it out just in time before the whole COVID mess and everything else that's going on in America. But we are all dual citizens. I'm an Australian and an American who wants to be a New Zealander. And all my other family members are New Zealanders and Americans at the same time. But we are here for a service and a sermon that's called Chosen. Chosen. And my mind blew when Gina read the Bible verse. Do you remember what she said for heading into communion? This might seem like a, not an appropriate verse or something like that for communion. And she read a passage from Peter that talks about how we are chosen. Did you hear that? Now, we didn't have cahoots about that. That just happened. Same Holy Spirit, maybe. But whenever my brain, whenever I hear the word chosen, my brain immediately goes to this, the chosen one. Does yours? Because we are surrounded by stories that feature a character who's a chosen one. Have you noticed that? Now, this is, we could go back to things like Moses being a chosen one or even King Arthur, you know, the guy that pulled a sword out of a stone or whatever. He's a chosen one. 
So there's all these stories throughout our history, and especially today, that feature a chosen one. This is where the protagonist is chosen by fate or an ancient prophecy or destiny or some higher power to step out of obscurity, to step out of the normal, because they didn't know it, but they actually are the chosen one. I'm going to throw some pictures up that I found on Google Images. Does anyone know who this guy is? Neo from the Matrix seat, right? He's working his computer job. He thinks everything's just bland and normal. But turns out he's not Mr. Anderson. He is Neo. And Neo is an anagram for one, O-N-E, because he is the chosen one, right? What about this? Does anyone know who this guy is? John Connor from the Terminator series. He's a chosen one. What about this person? All right. This, this is Emmett Brickowitz. Now, they don't say the chosen one in the first Lego movie. They say the special. But he is just this normal guy, doesn't know, but he's actually imbued with this special authority and this special power. Uh, who's this? A little bit less obvious in the Star Wars series, right? Series. Is that CRI? I don't know what to say there. A lot of movies about Star Wars. But Luke is the last Jedi. He's just living on Tatooine, but turns out he's a special person with special calling and a special role to play. He's actually extraordinary, not ordinary. In fact, the Star Wars franchise seems to love this idea of the Chosen One so much that Anakin's a Chosen One as well, by the way, and so is Rey. Moana. Moana's a Chosen One. She's chosen by the ocean to take back the heart of Tafiti. She thinks she's just on the island, but she's actually got a higher calling. And my favourite is Frodo. He's just this hobbit, right? Living in Hobbiton. Turns out he's the only one who can carry the ring of power. And I think sometimes that maybe it's a cause, but more likely it's a symptom, that it's very hard for us sitting in this room to realise the depths of the calling that is on our lives. We, we hear all these stories around us of someone who thinks their life is normal, but then something outstanding happens. You know, Gandalf, or we think we are, we're waiting for someone to come and say, actually, you need to live an extraordinary life. And we miss it. It's so easy for it to, us to miss the sense that we are chosen. But I'd like to think us here this morning... At Lane Park Church, we would recognize Jesus as being the chosen one, wouldn't we? In fact, I don't know if you know about this, but there's a series you can watch called The Chosen. Has anyone been watching this? It's not on Netflix. It's not on free-to-air TV. You've actually got to download an app, and it's free. You download an app, and you can watch this really well-produced series called The Chosen, and it's about the life of Jesus. Check it out. You watch it on your phone or your iPad or computer. But, but, but look at this. There's a passage here that tells us. This is an ancient prophecy from Isaiah, chapter 41, verse 1. And this is referring to Jesus. And Jesus' life on earth is completing this prophecy. He is the chosen one. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will bring justice to the nations. 
And this theme of being chosen goes beyond Jesus in the Bible as well. Look at this in Matthew 22:14. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Many are invited, but few are chosen. What's that about? Well, I believe if we have decided to follow Jesus, if we have chosen to call Jesus the Christ, we are chosen. I am chosen for something extraordinary. You are chosen for something extraordinary. But it's so easy for us to be lulled into this sense that actually I've just got to make it from one day to the next. And ignoring that, that deeper, higher calling on my life. But let's keep this in mind. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Andrew, he has chosen you. Dean, he has chosen you. Turn to someone beside you and say, you are chosen. Would you do that right now? You are chosen. Even at the sound desk. Thanks, Will, for doing that. You are chosen. And you are chosen by God not to live a normal, mundane, day-to-day sort of life. But you are called to something extraordinary. Do we get that? Something extra? I believe that those of us who are following Jesus should be called to a life that is so extraordinary and so stands out from the bunch of the crowd. You know, so different that the people who don't yet call Jesus Lord would be going, what is going on? on with those guys I need to know but that's not really happening is it I'm just being fair dinkum you know what I mean Kiwis don't you I'm just being fair dinkum you know what I think I think we're just a little bit nicer than the people who don't yet call Jesus Lord and you know where to find us on Sunday morning maybe two or three out of four what are we chosen for well, Colossians 3.12 gives us a clue, as does the Peter passage that Jeter told us. Colossians 3.12 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We need to be people who are characterized by compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience to a level that is otherworldly, extraordinary. I would say that we need to be people who conduct ourselves selflessly, not thinking of our own agenda, to an extent that it is mind-boggling. Bog, I can't even say the word. Mind-boggling to those who are not. Choices. I'm going to show you a photograph of Max when he was five. He's 14 now. Remember Max? Here he is at age five. All my kids are, are what we could call spirited children. <laughs> If you know what I mean? And around this age, I'm trying to be a, a, the best dad I can be, right? This is over in Nashville. And I'm, and I'm having some trouble uh, parenting Max. And my wife, Brooke, she's brilliant. See, I'd see Max try, trying to do something or doing something that I didn't think was appropriate behavior. And I'd sort of have a head-to-head battle with him. No, Max, don't do that. Stop that. No, right? Are you with me? Parents, you're right. It didn't go very well. And Brooke took me aside. And this is, a, this is a free piece of parenting advice you didn't expect here. All right. You've got to give kids choices. This is what Brooke said to me. This transformed our parenting. Don't say, don't write on the wall, Max. You say, Max, you can write on this piece of paper or this whiteboard. But you must not write on the wall. 
And Max feels loved and empowered by that. You see? We, and let's be honest here. We want to raise people. We want our children to become adults who make good choices, aren't we? That's what we want. People who are learning how to make appropriate choices. We can force people to stay within the lines. But it's actually much better to give children choices, appropriate level choices, and let them learn how to make the right choices. And this needs to continue through life. But you know what happens in a country like New Zealand or Australia or the United States? We end up with too many choices. Way too, in fact, I'm going to suggest that having way too many choices is a huge problem in our society. There's, there's actually um, studies that would suggest that us having too many choices is partly responsible for some of our problems with anxiety and depression. Too many choices is debilitating. Too many choices could stop us realising our responsibility as the chosen ones. Do you know how hard it is for me to get my family of five to choose one movie we can watch together? You with me? Too many. Cho- my kids choose from five different breakfast cereals every morning, and one of them can't decide. I can look at my wardrobe, bulging with clothes, 17 pairs of shoes, and go, oh, I've got nothing to wear. I can open the refrigerator, all these food choices, right? And I can go, oh, there's nothing to eat. I can be flicking through Netflix or all the other options I've got and go, nothing to watch. Too many choices kills us. Too many choices has us forget our calling as the chosen one. Now, we want children to have choices. But too many choices is bad. In fact, one of the ways of defining poverty is a lack of choices. And one of the ways of defining excess, overabundance, is too many choices. It's debilitating. It kills us. Now, we're partnering this morning with World Vision. And not just this morning. This is an ongoing relationship. And let me just say that uh, Lane Park Church, your reputation for generosity goes before you. Dean, thank you for your partnership with World Vision. You've got a pastor who understands the importance of us choosing to care for those who are in need. But some of us in this room, um, I'm, I'm sure there are many people in this room who already sponsor children with World Vision, maybe one of the other wonderful organisations that do similar work. But just in case some of us here are not really sure how it all works, we've got a short movie to show you that came to us from our friends in World Vision. We've got that, Joel? Thanks, Will. For the past 60 years, we've been partnering with people like you to help children and communities break free from poverty. But have you ever wondered how we use your community sponsorship money or donations to actually do that? To start, we approach each community we serve the same way, by listening to them. From the very beginning, we sit down with the community's children, families and leaders and listen to what their unique challenges and needs are. Do they need clean water, better schools, a dependable supply of wood, basic health care, local jobs? What opportunities do they see? 
Next, we work with them to develop a five-year action plan that will address the root causes of their challenges. Once the plan is drafted, we help them put it into action. We work with the existing leaders and empower new ones, bringing the community together to help them address the needs they've identified. And if something in the action plan isn't quite working as well as it should, we go back and change it so it does. But it doesn't stop there. We don't just help a community get the things they need like healthcare, education, clean water, nutritious food, and economic opportunity. We also train them so they know how to best care for and grow these new resources so that they will continue to have them for years to come. When the community has grown healthier, safer and more self-sustaining, then we transition out and move on to the next community in need. By now, the community is a better place for children to live and grow, and they are more equipped to handle emergencies and can even turn around and help their neighbours. From beginning to end, this transformation is made possible because of people like you who are passionate about helping children and communities break free from poverty. So the important piece of information there is um, World Vision work to partner with local communities to empower them, to, to bring dignity to people who are living without dignity and to right the wrongs of circumstances, to, to break this, what I'm going to call a, a evil mindset that would say that those with less are less. Because that is a lie. Those with less are not less. And it costs $50 a month to sponsor a child. Some of you know that. Um, and there's going to be an opportunity to choose to sponsor a child this morning. Uh, it might be your first child that you've ever sponsored. It might be your second, third or 47th. I don't know. But there will be that opportunity in a moment. But understand that this is not... <laughs> looking after one child. This is, this, is, this is looking after a whole community and World Vision is working very hard to do themselves out of a job. And when you, com when you communicate with people on the field, like in places like Malawi, it's not a whole bunch of Pakiha people. It's the local indigenous people being empowered, being given dignity and trained and helped to, to help themselves. It's amazing work. And like I say, I'm not on staff, but I get to say things like that, that because I'm not on staff, you know, it's just incredible. So there's that opportunity for you and I to step into the role of affirming the dignity of people who don't have much and restoring broken circumstances. It's a chance for us to give more choices to those who have so few. And it might cost us a few of our excess of choices. So uh, I want to speak to you about a guy who I've got to know a little bit over the last year or so. His name's Vitalis. Okwako. He's from Kenya, but he lives in Auckland. And I've got a, a photograph from his Facebook page. This is a photo of Vitalis and his wife, Anna. Here they are. Now, Vitalis and Anna fell in love and got married, and no one told poor Vitalis going in. But if you fall in love with a Kiwi girl, you're going to live in New Zealand. <laughs> so he lives in Auckland. And he's an amazing guy. I've got the chance to sit down with him over a meal. Somehow making it, like communicating over a meal makes a difference, doesn't it, Dean? 
Uh, I've had a couple of those meetings, and I've got to know him, but he's given me approval to share a little bit of his story. See, he was raised in Kenya, and he tells me that this is like 80s into the 90s when he was a, a child growing into his teenage years. And he said, well, Grant, we, we were very poor. And I said to him, hey, Vitalis, you've got to help sort this out for me, mate, because you say you were very poor, but I feel like I'm poor. You know, I feel like I'm poor. Why? Because I've got a family of five living in a house with one toilet, one shower, no bath. I feel poor because my cars, my two cars are getting kind of old. One of them hasn't got cruise control or heated seats, you know. I can feel poor when I'm at a restaurant and feel like I better look past the steak and get a burger instead. You know, like, so you better tell me what you mean, Vitalis, by poor. And he said to me, oh, not poor like that, Grant. We were a family of, of six, mum, dad, four children. We lived on a little tiny farm, which is about the size of a petrol station. And we were subsistence farmers. Whatever we got to eat, we had to grow it first. And our little mud brick house with dirt floor, no glass in the windows, no running water, no electricity. Can you believe it? No internet service. The phones didn't work. They didn't have phones. <laughs> and you might think I'm talking about the 80s, 90s. There are many, many people living like this today. And he said, we hardly ever got enough to eat. Sometimes there was too much rain. Sometimes there wasn't enough rain. The crops would fail. We'd be sent out by our parents into the bush to try and find berries and roots to eat. But usually there was not enough. And we'd go hungry. Many and many a night, Vitalis is trying to go to sleep. But he just can't get to sleep, lying on the dirt floor, because he's just so hungry. And the water they had to drink, they had to travel a long way to get it. Um, I can't remember the distance he told me, but it was like an hour walk and back. I, don't, don't correct me on that, I'm not sure, but I know this much is true. Often the water would make them sick. And if they ever did get sick, there was no chance of getting proper medical attention. In fact, one of the saddest parts of Vitalis' story is I told you that he was one of four siblings, but his mother actually gave birth to 12 children. Eight died before the age of five, like so many children do today. And you know, when I started speaking like this about 17 years ago in America, the number that we were told to say if we wanted to was that 45,000 children died from hunger and hunger-related diseases that are easily preventable each and every day. But over the years, that number has been coming down. And down and down, 35,000 now, Grant. You can say, if you want to, 25 now. 20. The, the lowest number I heard was in 2018, 17,000. Now, 17,000 children dying from hunger and hunger-related diseases that are easily preventable is 17,000 too many, right? But I tell you, 2018, even early 2019, I'm getting excited. I am going to see this problem of infant mortality, this terrible statistic of of extreme poverty end in my lifetime. And I'm a little cog in the wheel of helping that happen. I'm chosen for this. But I'm sorry to tell you that with COVID, that number's going to go up for the first time in 40 years. I haven't heard the number. I don't know. We don't know yet. The numbers haven't come in yet, but it's going up. The needs are getting greater again. Vitalis desperately wanted to go to school, but there seemed to be no chance of that. 
The government, for some reason, passed a law saying that the only people that got to go to school would have to wear the proper school uniform, and his family couldn't afford it. So Vitalis's version of poor is very different to mine. And Vitalis had a very, very difficult life. So few choices. In fact, Vitalis tells me that the only choice he could see at that point for him was either to stay on the farm and maybe starve or become a criminal. And he saw many of his peers make that choice. But something changed. World Vision came to that part of Kenya and somebody chose Vitalis to be a sponsored child. Everything changed. Now there was enough to eat. Now the, clean, the drinking water was clean. It didn't make them sick. If they ever did get sick or injured, there was proper medical attention. And World Vision bought Vitalis a school uniform. And he was able to go to school. Turns out Vitalis is very, very clever. He's acing all his subjects. He's doing extremely well. He finishes high school. He is so well educated and with a good command of English that he gets to go to the capital city, Nairobi, and get a good job in a hotel that has white-faced people show up from time to time. And even though life is still a struggle, he's starting to realize that he has chosen for something beyond self. And he's sending money home to his rural area of Kenya to support his mother. His father unfortunately died from hunger, starvation, but also helping his children and other friends go through school. Because he would tell you that education is going to break the cycle of poverty in this world. And he's now a very, very highly educated person. In Nairobi, while he's doing the hotel job, he's studying tertiary education. He meets Anna. They fall in love. They get married. He moves to New Zealand. He's now working in Auckland as a security guard at a hospital, but he's just finished his second master's degree. And he carries himself with this grace and poise. I wish we could have got him here. He's got this undefinable sense of being chosen by God. He financially supports the work of World Vision New Zealand. He still sends money home to support his mother and several other people in Kenya. And he doesn't make much money as a security guard in a hospital. But he realises he's chosen for something more. You know, there's this statement that we all have heard before. It's become a bit of a cliche, maybe a schoolyard cliche that none of us would say today, but it's this one. Beggars can't be choosers. You heard that? Beggars can't be choosers. I think it's a, a statement that reveals an attitude that lies under the surface of our culture. The false narrative that's living in each of our deep subconscious that says the poor ought to be happy with whatever I decide, whatever I choose, they should get from me. Those who have less are less. It's a lie. That is not the kingdom of God. That is not how we should be thinking. This is not the currency of the kingdom of God. You know, there are over 1,200 verses in the Bible about the poor. And I'm going to suggest with conviction that the thing that Jesus teaches about most in his written words in the Bible are that we who are chosen should be caring for the poor. James 2.5 says this to us. 
Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promises those who love him? The poor are the chosen. And we too are chosen. And you might sit here thinking, you know, I chose to follow Jesus. He didn't choose me. And I'm not going to, this is not a sermon about predestination. Can I just say this? There's no chicken nor egg in this story. All right? There's no chicken nor egg in that. You might have chosen to follow Jesus, but you have been chosen by God. And we who are chosen must recognize, this is not anger, this is passion, church, must recognize that the poor are chosen by God and we need them more than we need, we, they need us. In an eternal sense, we need them more than they need us. And I've been blind to that. I've been blind. You know, at the very start of Jesus' earthly ministry, he reads from the prophet Isaiah. He says this. This is the beginning of his earthly ministry. He goes to a temple and he reads from the prophet Isaiah. And, he, and he's the chosen one, right? And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. This is why he's come. To affirm those who have no identity and dignity, and to break the shackles of an unjust world. And he continues, He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is what it's all about. If you have nailed your flag to the mast of being a follower of Jesus... I do not believe Jesus came to earth and died and rose from the dead so that we would have another religion choice. So that we could choose which denomination we liked. So we could choose which church to be part of. So we could choose the sermons that we like to hear and choose the songs we want to sing. That is not why Jesus, the chosen one, lived and died. He, cha- he came to this earth to bring dignity to those who don't have it, to give choices to those who have so few, and to break the shackles of injustice in this world. And you and I are chosen for that role. Help me out. Have I come across too angry, too Australian? It's passion, right? I love you guys. Reading Isaiah at the start of Jesus' earthly ministry, at the very end of his earthly ministry, right before being betrayed and crucified and rising from the dead, Jesus gives a sermon. This is the last recorded sermon before he is betrayed and crucified. It's this passage that we know today as being the sheep and the goats. Bookends. To me, this passage, the sheep and the goats, is one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. Maybe the most important. This is just three chapters after Matthew 22. Remember where Jesus said, For many are invited, but few are chosen? Well, this is a story where Jesus says, One day, Judgment Day, everybody's going to stand before God. And he declares himself as God in this story, by the way. And all of us are going to be separated into, into two groups, the way a shepherd would separate sheep from goats. And I knew that story growing up in the Baptist church. I thought the sheep were the Christians and the goats weren't. I must be a sheep because I prayed a sinner's prayer. You know, because I was in church on Sunday, because I read my Bible, because I prayed. But that is not what Jesus says. 
No, Jesus says that the only outward criteria that God is looking for to decide whether Grant Norsworthy is chosen to be a sheep or not is how I treat the least of these. The hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the sick, the lonely and the imprisoned. In fact, Jesus says these words. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. He's changed it to I. Jesus is saying, I am the least of these. I am. And he continues. Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And so as I conclude this message, I'd like us to work together here to create a holy moment. And I'm going to ask you to do three things in this holy moment. Number one, as we bring our service to a close, I'm going to ask you to pray to God and say, God, I recognize I'm chosen. Do you want me to sponsor a child this morning? Ask that. Be so bold. And the God that knows your needs better than you do will give you an answer. Listen for his answer. Will you do that, the second thing? I believe he will say yes or no. It's between you and God, not between me and you. Listen for his voice. Should I sponsor a child this morning in partnership with World Vision? Yes or no? And if you hear the yes, then you must respond. And I'm going to tell you in a moment how you can respond. But when I started sponsoring children back in the year 2000, I was in a church service like this, and I went to a table like that one, but it was covered by faces of little children. And I chose a little seven-year-old girl in Rwanda called Karabo. And I think it was a good thing that I did. It, it, it started the transformation of Grant Norsworthy, who wanted to be a rock star for Jesus, into more of what I believe my calling truly is, what I'm chosen for. But as I look back, I realise I chose the little photograph that would look the best on my fridge. And I turned Carabo into another utility for me. I would look down my bank statement and see my rent and my electricity and my phone and there's Carabo. Oh, I'm one of the good people. I turned her into a utility that was buying me a little bit of religious self-righteousness. A little bit of, don't ask me to sponsor a second child. Look, I'm already doing it. You know, too many choices was killing me. So... Ask yourself, as you do those three things, what of my overabundance of choices can I give away and give to a child who has so few? But there's something that I'm super excited about this morning. There are no photographs of children over there. None. We are going to let children choose us to be their sponsors. We've got a short video about that.
There's a beautiful changing of heart happening in world vision. And it's affecting me too. I think we've done some good work in the past, but we've been doing it wrong. We have at the heart of a thought that beggars can't be choosers and they should be happy with whatever we thought we could afford. But that's not the way we need to think about this this morning here at Lane Park. We need them more than they need us. Dean, come up here, mate. Dean and George have been talking about this and planning on this for a long time. I don't know how long. But Lane Park Church is partnering with a community, a particular community in Malawi. Malawi is a little landlocked country on the southeastern side of Africa. It's got 120 million people living in this landmass that is uh, surrounded by Tanzania, Mozambique, Zambia. It's uh, less than half the area of New Zealand with 24 times the population. And 70% of the people there live in extreme poverty. And I'm not using the word extreme as a loose adjective. Extreme poverty means like the Talas. In particular, there's a community in Lapiri. This is where World Vision is already at work, but there are hundreds of children there who still don't yet have a sponsor. And we want to give them that opportunity this morning. So this is how it's going to happen. We're going to let them choose us to be their sponsors. But you will first need to choose those three things. Ask God, listen for his answer, and respond obediently. George, Misha, Dean, I will not look at you weirdly if you decide no. But we believe and hope that that's based on what you sense from God's leading. But we must open our hearts. And we, we must allow...